um, um, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the antitheses, remember the antitheses are those parts of the sermon that say you have heard it said, meaning you've heard it said either in the Ten Commandments or the Law of Moses. You've heard it said in the law, for instance, um, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, don't even get be angry with your brother or sister because it's from the inside that actions like murder come from. And it starts with anger, and then it builds to something like murder. So Jesus is providing a new interpretation of the law, an uncommon solution, right, to what is a common problem, a different solution than what we have found before in the law, even though it is on the same level as the law. It's a, an interpretation of the law. So last week, um, we so last week we talked about, um, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, boy, don't even look at someone with lust because, again, that's, that's, what, that's what leads to adultery. And so you've already committed adultery if you, if you go there because it's what's in the heart that matters. It's what's in the heart that causes this defilement of the body. So... Let's turn today to see an uncommon solution, as Paul would say, to a common problem or Jesus' reinterpretation or interpretation of the law as we look at an eye for an eye. So we're going to pick up with Matthew 5, 38 to 42. And Jesus says, You have heard, heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, this is, is Jesus' interpretation. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. So this, these are some extra advice that Jesus, not advice, commands that Jesus is giving uh, on how do you solve this problem. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Okay, so let's back up here. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. So Jesus, of course, is referring to what has become known as what was known at the time as the lex talionis, the lex talionis, and that's just fancy words in for the law of retaliation. When somebody does you wrong, and again, Paul just covered this beautifully this morning in his sermon, when somebody does you wrong, our reaction is to want to strike back and to get back at someone else. So literally, the law of retaliation, and there was a law of retaliation that said it was one of the best-known legal principles in Jewish scripture, and it was passed down through the ages, through legal codes. An eye for an eye. Okay, it's not in the Ten Commandments. We, we haven't seen that anywhere in the Ten Commandments, but it was from the Torah, from the five books of Moses, and we find it uh, in, a, in no less than three places in the law. We see it in Exodus, we see it in Leviticus, and we see it in Deuteronomy. And again, all of this is sort of the Lord speaking through Moses, and it's, um, it's uh, referred as Moses' words coming out to the people. So in Deuteronomy, 
here's what Moses says. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And in Exodus, we see if any harm follows, then you shall give, again the words, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, they're getting real deep here, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So whatever happens to you as someone does harm to you, it was legal to, to do the same punishment to them, that that would be the punishment. Then in Leviticus, from the Holiness Code, again, these words, anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So the injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. Okay, so because it was in the law, in the five books of Moses, the Lex Talionis was understood to come from Moses and from Mount Sinai, that, these w- w- that this would, is right up there with the Ten Commandments, this flowed out to the people. And so, just as the Ten Commandments had, then these words had too. And so the goal of the Lex Talionis was really twofold. Um, the first, it guaranteed justice, that there was, right to rep- there was a right to retribution. So there was a right to retribution, there's this right to strike back. If harm had been done to you, then you could, you could make sure that justice was done. But really, probably the greater part of this was to ensure that there was a limit to retribution. There was a limit to vengeance. So if you were struck once by another person, you couldn't pummel them four times. You couldn't, so um, if, you, if you were in an accident or someone caused you to lose your right hand, you couldn't have both of their hands cut off. So it limited the, the violence that would come from retribution. Um, so it meant to curb uh, uh, this unlimited revenge or, or help prevent these blood feuds, whether that be between individuals or, you know, like the Hatfields and McCoys, between families or between tribes. So it's helping to kind of keep violence from getting out of hand. Does that make sense? All right, so, and he says, but I say to you, so with, as with all the antitheses in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is using his own authority and his own uh, hakala or his interpretation, and he's setting it against the, re- the received tradition. So the tradition says, eye for an eye. But he says, but I say to you, and here's this uncommon solution, even though you have the right under the law to respond uh, with violence, violence for violence, don't do it. Don't do it. There's a better way. Don't, and the word here, resist, we're going to take a look at that. Don't resist the evildoer. Nearly all Bible translations use the word resist, don't resist the evildoer, but let's take a closer look at that. Um, then this word can really be misleading. The Greek word used here is antisteme, antistemi, and it implies more than just resisting another person. Not, it's not uh, passive. Uh, it literally means this antistemi means uh, don't be hostile toward another, or don't set yourself against another. Um, 
in the English we say don't resist. It imp our word implies more of this passive stance. Um, don't just we're just going to sit back and allow this to happen. But the original language seems to be more concerned about lashing out and striking back and being vengeful and being violent. So it's not just passively allowing something to happen to you. Uh, in the New English uh, Bible, the translation says, do not set yourself against. And that's probably more true to the Greek translation. So Jesus' point is, don't strike out or strike back at another person. And of course, strike here is the, is the operative word. Culturally, um, this probably makes a little bit more sense too from the day. Resistance or opposition to evil is, is very central to Jewish tradition, right? Resisting evil. And so uh, the real issue is how are we going to respond to evil? What's going to happen? How are we going to respond to evil? And so the, the thrust of Jesus' teaching is to rule out violence for violence. Uh, if you launch one missile and then there's two launched back, how many How many are going to go next time? Four, then maybe eight. Um, the, the, it just feeds on itself, and so violence breeds more violence, and that that is not the solution. So the thrust of Jesus' teaching is to rule out violence, and then he gives five examples. First, uh, what do you do when someone slaps you on the cheek? And Well, I don't like this. Uh, don't strike back. Instead, turn the other cheek. And turning the other cheek goes against this uh, lex talionis. It, it sets against that. It also goes beyond simply not resisting or not striking back. There's something else going on here. It, it advocates an alternative action. Um, and there's more going on behind this than what it appears. So in the world of Jesus, being struck on the back of the, on the cheek with the back of the hand was not just a metaphor. So if you struck someone on the right cheek, say if you're right-handed and you're going to strike someone on the right cheek, if I was going to hit Jane, <laughs> and this would be her right cheek in my hand. That means you're going to backhand them. So if you're striking someone on the right cheek, you're going to backhand them. So this isn't just a metaphor. It's something that was actually done during this era, and it's particularly done by those in authority or those in the upper classes toward those with less authority or those who were marginalized, the poor and the lower classes. It's particularly those people that Jesus is talking to, his audience, the ones we learn in the Sermon on the Mount that he says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they've been treated this way. And so striking someone of a lower class with the back of the hand was used to assort, assert authority or dominance. And culturally, this slap on the cheek was more than just an act of violence. It was considered an insult. So to insult someone, you would backhand them and show that you were in authority and that they were not. And at a, at a minimum, turning the, the other cheek, offering them this other cheek, was a renunciation of uh, this violence on two levels. So this is really a... Um, a little subversive, actually. Um, if I'm going to turn my cheek, um, the first on the first level, um, you didn't respond by slapping or striking back. You didn't escalate the violence. But on the second, by turning the other cheek, you opened yourself up to another strike 
So if I'm going to, if I, <laughs> if I hit Jane with the back of my hand and then she offers me the other cheek, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. I can't backhand her again. That means I'd have to slap your face on with an open hand um, or I'd have to use the back of my left hand, right? Um, so there's something going on here culturally. So you've opened yourself up to another strike and some suggest that turning the other cheek may have additional meaning. A more, it's a more aggressive or subversive meaning. Turning the other cheek forced the one who struck you to use their left hand or to use an open hand. And culturally, if, if I'm using the left hand, that's going to create a problem in, uh, in this culture because um, if the one being struck turned the other cheek, uh, the, the aggressor, that would have been me in this instance, would have been faced with a real dilemma. The left hand was used for ritually unclean purposes very unclean purposes if you think about it um, and so the back of the of the hand um, it to, to strike someone then with this unclean hand violated the law I can't I'm not going to touch somebody with my unclean hand and so the other alternative of course would have been to slap with the open hand or to punch the person and this would be a statement of equality um, I only open slapped somebody excuse me if, if they were of the same status as me. And so that would have been a statement of equality. So they put the person, this nonviolent solution to the problem, puts the aggressor in a, in a real conundrum. Um, and so at one level, offering the other cheek is not a sign of weakness, right? It's a forceful double rejection of violence. So we've rejected violence as an alternative and it could be interpreted as a, a very bold move, um, one that demands equality from the other person. Um, and so there is some evidence that we see this in Paul's letter to the Romans and it supports this second interpretation. And of course, this is an interpretation, of what I just presented is, is one interpretation that scholars provide and I rather like it, so that's why you got it today. Um, <laughs> so in Romans, Paul seems to be drawing on this same teaching uh, and applying it in, in kind of an aggressive way. Romans 12, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals upon their heads. It reminds me a lot of the civil rights movement. It's like if you keep, if we keep seeing these images of people who are being mistreated and they're not, and they're not reacting violently, who's made to look bad in that? The aggressor, right? Let's heap. It's going to heap burning coals upon their heads. So by doing this, you will heap burning coals upon their heads. What's even more interesting is that in this statement, Paul is is even though an eye for an eye is is drawing on Jewish tradition. So is this. So from Proverbs, we see, if your enemies are hungry, your enemies are hungry. Not just the poor person down the street. If your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. And if they're thirsty, give them water to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on their heads. How, do you, how does the violence escalate if you are feeding and taking care of your enemy in need? hard to do okay so this raises the possibility that even if Jesus intended his teaching um, as an act of defiance he would have stood 
within the Jewish tradition. So you, you saw both in the Jewish tradition, and he would have stood within the Jewish tradition. On the other hand, um, this non-retaliation is also clearly part of the Jewish tradition. Even, um, even the Lex Talionis could be challenged. Um, in Proverbs 24 says, Do not say, I will do to others as they have done to me. I will pay them back for what they have done. We can't say that. We're not supposed to say that. Um, so like Jesus is teaching, we hear the golden rule. This is a clear rejection of the eye for the eye. And we find a similar view in um, the Essene community at Qumran. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the rule of the community, we see this. I will pay to no one the reward of evil. I will pursue the offender with goodness. So turning the other cheek is the only one of Jesus' five examples that would fit under uh, the Lex Talionis, which was limited to bodily injury. And then we move on from there. The second example takes and extends the point in turning the other cheek, and it now applies to other areas, and particularly to lawsuits. So we're moving from eye for an eye, which is uh, bodily harm, to now what happens, and all this is in the same little pericope together, uh, what do I do if someone wants to sue? Someone sues you and wants to take your coat or your tunic, and of course in our, uh, with our uh, language, coat and tunic mean totally different things than they did in Jesus' culture. Uh, he says, if someone sues you and wants to take your coat or tunic, give it to them, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. Give them your cloak as well. So just go ahead. You can take my stole and take my robe and take, take the rest. Um, what's being said is not immediately clear to us today because of our English translation coat doesn't help. We think of coat as something we wear in the winter. But in Jesus' world, people only wore two articles of clothing. One, uh, the coat. They wore a coat or a, or a tunic. That's the outer garment. And then the cloak, I mean the, inner, the undergarment, was the coat or the tunic. So we think of coat as going on top. It didn't. Coat was underneath. The coat or the tunic was the undergarment, and the cloak was the outer garment. And so um, what is being asked for is the keton, the undergarment. And so to fulfill what's being asked, to hand over your underwear, basically, to hand over your undergarment, you would first have to take off both garments, right? Which is going to leave you a little exposed, leaving you naked. Again, here's some of that rabbinical little humor going on there that you're going to be standing in a culture in which nudity was one of the, like, the biggest cultural ta taboos. In order to give what's being sued for, you're going to have to stand, stand uh, naked before the person who's suing you. And so it's designed to be humiliating, just like this, this backhanded slap on the cheek. Uh, and so everything in the example indicates that this would be something that would be done to the poor. Why would, you, why would you sue a poor person for their underwear? Why? That's all they have, right? So it just shows what kind of person you are, right, if you're suing someone for their underwear. And so Jesus' advice is, so don't just kind of slip out from your undergarments and hand those over. 
just go ahead and hand over everything. Hand over the, the cloak as well and stand there naked. Uh, just as with turning the other cheek, it's going to set up a situation that's going to make this person look really bad, right? And, and so it's not advantageous to the one who's suing you. So taking both garments then, if, if uh, you handed them over, if you took both of those garments and you handed over to whoever was suing you, it violates the Torah because in the Torah, in Exodus, we hear these words. If you take your neighbor's cloak, that's the, the outer garment, uh, you shall restore it before the sun goes down. For it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. In what else shall that person sleep? So if you, if you were to take the outer cloak, you've got to give it back. So everybody's got to keep their cloak. Um, that's the law. And some suggest that just like turning the other cheek, handing over both the cloak and the shirt would also be seen as um, not as a submissive action, but really a subversive action, an act of defiance. Um, and so not only would taking both garments violate Jewish law, it would also reflect very badly on the person who's bringing the lawsuit, right? So, so that's, some say that that is probably a, a good way to interpret what Jesus is saying here. And so culturally, an action, of course, that caused someone to be standing naked in public reflected poorly on the person who caused it, right? So um, not only was the one, uh, the one who was left standing naked. Okay, so in both cases, um, this would show that the person who sued for the cloak to be pretty despicable. And so handing over both your un outer and undergarment turned, turned the tables on the person who started out with the upper hand, just as the, the turning the cheek did too. Okay, and then we hear the words, if you are forced to go a mile, then go two. And this is, uh, Jesus' third example in this was documented in a very common practice that the Roman soldiers uh, who oppressed those would often ask people to carry things for them, you know, to say, um, I need you to carry, or force people to carry supplies or whatever. And it was suggested, I think a mile was sort of the, the length that they could do so. So it was a very common practice. And to use this uh, in this scenario, of course, we, we think about Matthew being written um, after Jesus' death. And, of course, what thoughts come to mind for the, the hearers of this who've been around during Jesus' lifetime, what image is this going to conjure up? His crucifixion and carrying a cross. And if, so uh, this, this practice predates Roman times going back to the Persian period, and, but in the first century it would raise the reality of Palestine as an occupied country. They're being, um, being occupied by the Romans and the oppression of Roman rule. And what it's really going to bring out, of course, we have this one account of this, uh, of this practice in the Gospels, and it's the story of Simon of Cyrene who was forced to carry Jesus' cross. And this is really going to be probably an image that when Jesus says this, or when people, when, as this writing is up, and people are, are hearing these words from Matthew's Gospel, that this is what is going to come to mind from Matthew 27. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. So this means that Jesus' teaching would, um, 
not have been very popular. Can you imagine? You've just seen this happen not too many years before, and you're saying, I'm supposed to carry something two miles if I'm asked to carry it one, and this has actually been placed upon my Lord. And in his situation, it could have been seen as helping the Romans and so, uh, or as collaborating with them. And so for his contemporaries, this was easily the most offensive of examples that Jesus uses here in these three examples. So, um, and then giving to the beggar. The fourth example is much more in line with the, the traditional Jewish, te Jewish teaching. So he says, give, give to those who beg. Um, this come, we see this in uh, Sirach. Be patient with someone in humble circumstances and do not keep him waiting for your alms. Help the poor for the sake of the commandments and in their need do not send them away empty-handed. And then from Tobit we see, give alms from your possessions and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you make it. Do not turn your face away from anyone who is poor. So, and then borrowing, of course, is Jesus' final example, and it's also in tune with the traditional of Jewish teaching. So all of this is in line with Torah. And in borrowing, it deals with giving money to those who've fallen on hard times, and we see this in Leviticus. If any of your kin fall into difficulty and become dependent on you, you shall support them. You shall not lend them your money at interest or provide them food at a profit or otherwise make a profit from them. So we're not going to profit from those who are in need. In Deuteronomy, if there's any among you, anyone in need, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Give liberally and be ungrudgingly, ungrudging when you do so. Since there will never cease to be some in need on earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. So that's, that one is easier, except everybody, really, Lord? Everybody? And so part of this material is in Thomas 96. Jesus said, if you have money, don't lend it at interest. Rather, give it to someone from whom you won't get it back. Give it to someone from whom you won't get it back. So if you're going to lend, don't expect it to, get, to be repaid. And in the final two examples, Jesus apparently finds that the law supports his teaching. And he does not have to go beyond the law. So all of this is really part of Jewish culture. He's just pulling up those parts, what, what's at the heart of the law, and bringing it forth in his interpretation. Okay, but collectively, these examples that Jesus have, has made, these examples take Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and non-resistance to a level that's not seen in any of his contemporaries. It just goes beyond anything that anybody has seen before. And not only uh, do we not resist, it says, we go beyond what is required. If you're asked to go one mile, go two. And if that puts a person, the, the persecutor, in it, uh, that would put the persecutor in the bad light and, of course, be a little bit subversive as well, and so be it. Um, in the Jewish tradition, the lex talionis tried to limit retaliation and make it proportional to the offense. But Jesus, of course, goes beyond that, and it, and it didn't work. If we try to limit retaliation, does it ever work? It just escalates. Um, and in the, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus rejects this retaliation, rejects revenge, rejects violence. 
and he proposes an alternative, as uh, Paul would say, uh, a life hack. He pr proposes an alternative to simply limiting retribution. It's, he says it's better to suffer wrong than to, feel, to feed this spiral of violence, and if you do not resist, then the spiral is broken. It doesn't mean to have to say we have to stay in violence, but we don't, we don't produce violence for violence. And so for Jesus, this is more than just teaching. He seems to have done the same thing in his actions, right? So here's what we see in Matthew. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus, and they arrested him. And suddenly one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword and drew it and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And later that evening at his trial, when he spat on and beaten, there is no indication that he gave any opposition. So Jesus leads this example. So we've seen how Matthew treats this, and Luke takes the same story and he bookends it. He, he treats this material in a very interesting and revealing way. Luke inserts this material that we've just read inside a larger block of material, linking it to other related material in his gospel. In Luke, Luke brackets the material on both sides with the command to love your enemies. So here's what Luke says, and he also adds the golden rule on the back side. So Luke sort of compresses this into, into this little small block. Re let's read this. Even Luke's version even contains the material that Paul quoted in Romans. So from Luke we see, but I say to you, I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. And then we see the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So he bookends this, love your enemies, here's how we do it, love your enemies. And here's what we see in Matthew. So Luke clearly sees today's teaching on turning the other cheek um, in the broader context of Jesus' teaching about the golden rule and the command to love your, love your enemies and, and um, do good to those who hurt you. So in Matthew, what we find is that the golden rule, we're going to find it pretty close to this. Uh, we're in chapter uh, 5 here. The golden rule is going to show up toward the end of Matthew. And so we see this moving in this direction. So Matthew's taking this idea, and he's moving us toward, here's, here's where we're headed. We're headed to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, and what we find right after this, but, but the command to love your enemies immediately follows what we just read. So at the crux of this, Matthew is saying an eye for an eye. You have heard it said an eye for an eye, but really what we come down to is I say to you, 
love your enemies because that's what's following this is following immediately what we've just read today immediately this love your enemies immediately follows what we saw today and it's it's really uh, in the final and the and the most climatic antitheses of of love your enemy and so next week that that is what all of this led to today to for forgiveness and love of enemies nonviolent resistance is the way is the way that Jesus teaches 